And good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, whatever the case may be on this rotating globe. Welcome to another edition of The Other Side of Midnight, that magical time between dusk and dawn where, well, these days about anything can happen, and you should see the preparation for this show. Everything is, in fact, happening. We have been beset by a number of very interesting technical problems over the last week or two. And at the first break, I'm going to take some time and describe, A, what they are, and B, how you can help. Because, yes, you, the audience, the people all over the world who listen to this show, which is unique. I mean, in a world of the overuse of that word, this show is unique, as you're going to hear this morning. So at about the first break, I'm going to tell you what you can do to help ameliorate some of the really bizarre technical issues that have bedeviled us for the last week or two which some of you have kind of uh, been wondering about and wonder why we just don't fix things. Well, that's a kind of a long tale, and we will uh, get into that at about the half-hour break. Now, this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to try to set the scene for some very interesting additional information, which is coming in from missions, Mar- Mars, moon missions that are literally all over the world, converging on the moon for the first time in our lifetime. And when I say for the first time in our lifetime, I really mean that because at the moment we have two missions that are en route to the moon. One is supposed to arrive in November, mid-November, November November 13th to be exact. The other, uh, lagging about a month behind, is going to arrive on the uh, 16th of December, And uh, that one is one we're going to kind of focus a bit on tonight to set the scene for what the uh, Enterprise Mission Imaging Team members are going to present, which is remarkable artifacts not above the moon, like I've been dealing with for the last couple of weeks, but literally on the surface of the moon. And uh, they come from a variety of investigators, from a variety of locations and they have a variety of configurations so I hope by the end of the evening you will be well edified as to what in fact we are looking at on the surface of our nearest planetary neighbor when I say that I say that with all due respect because the moon if it really orbited the Sun all by itself and supposed to uh, circling the earth it would be considered a planet I mean it's bigger than Pluto which is called a a dwarf planet Um, It's uh, about uh, two-thirds the size of Ganymede, which is the largest moon of Jupiter, which if it was orbiting the sun, it would be considered a planet larger somewhat than Mercury. So nomenclature over the centuries has kind of drifted as we've learned more information. And tonight, we're going to be talking about the missions to the moon, which in fact um, are in a very curious state of abeyance. So let me try to go through this uh, in, in somewhat chronological order. If you go to Radio with Pictures, and the way you get there is you click on tonight's banner, which says, Make No Wine Before It's Time, Artemis Part 2. And you click on that banner, that will take you from the main page, the home page at uh, the other side of midnight.com, to the guest page. Click on that banner, that will take you to the uh, guest page. Click on my name under it where it says, Um, uh, guest page fast links to items click on my name and you'll see first item that's the Artemis 1 SLS Orion uh, spacecraft combination Artemis as you know is the first return by NASA of a human spacecraft to the moon in about 50 years the last mission to the moon was in December of 1972 And for all those decades since, no human beings have ventured near the moon. In coming weeks, by the way, we're going to be looking at this from a somewhat different perspective because that interregnum in and of itself is really highly anomalous. And uh, there are some folks who we're going to be talking to on air who have some very interesting theories and ideas for why that 50-year, half a century interregnum in human visits to the moon uh, actually took place. But that is kind of premature because tonight I want to set the scene because coming up next week, I think Wednesday, 
which is the 21st. Yeah, when, yeah 21st. Um, as you know, NASA has tried two launch attempts of the Artemis One mission, which will be an unmanned mission of the human manned spaceflight um, spacecraft, the Orion uh, command module, replacing the much older and much smaller Apollo command module. And it will go on a 40-plus day mission up to and around the moon in a very extended orbit, extending out some 39,000 miles from the center of the moon. The uh, Apollo astronauts were about 60 miles up. So this is a very different orbit. Um, it will take weeks to make one orbit, and they're going to make one and a half, I think, and then they will come home. The spacecraft, unlike Apollo, which was rated for just a couple of weeks, um, can safely carry uh, four astronauts for 21 days. And in fact, they are going to be stressing the spacecraft, uh, the, the human part of it, for almost twice that amount of time to make sure that they ring out all the problems. And that's what a test flight is for. So they've been trying now for several weeks. There have been two previous launch attempts, both of which have been terminated because of, you know, confounding leaks in the hydrogen uh, refueling system, which fills those that large tank in the base of the rocket, providing the fuel to mix with the oxidizer, liquid oxygen, that actually burns in the four engines that produces thrust and helps inject the spacecraft into a uh, lunar transfer orbit. All of that's going to be tested in terms of the loading of liquid hydrogen and oxygen uh, this Wednesday on the 21st. There'll be a full, what they call, tanking test, and they will test to see if the leak seals they replaced uh, last weekend, in fact, have been replaced, have been successfully repaired, and they will be ready for a launch no earlier than September 27th. That is the new intended launch date for Artemis 1. Now, that again, due to problems that we cannot foresee at the moment, that could slip. Uh, there's always weather. I mean, weather at the Cape in late summer, particularly when you're, uh, uh, you know, just beginning hurricane season, um, that could be a, a serious problem. So whether notwithstanding, we will find out whether the fixes have been fixed and whether the uh, spacecraft system, the um, space launch system, that's what SLS stands for, is ready to go. Item number two. Now, this is getting really, really, really weird. As you know, um, a couple of months ago, the uh, NASA people launched uh, a small satellite, weighs about 55 pounds, is about the size of a microwave oven, and they sent it on a very long ballistic trajectory, which is very low energy. It takes about four months to go from low Earth orbit to the moon, and it's supposed to be injected into this very unusual retrograde lunar orbit around the moon. Um, on November 13th. Well, in order to get there, it has to undergo what are called mid-course corrections. Every few weeks, based on tracking from the ground, radio antennas and Doppler and all that, um, they give instructions to the onboard computer to fire little thrusters from engines on board, fueled with tanks on board, and they accelerate or decelerate by a few you know, inches per second, adjusting the trajectory so that they wind up in the correct geometry and location to enter lunar orbit on the 13th of November. <clears throat> well, the third one, the third of these mid-course corrections, took place last week on the 8th, and then something radically wrong took place, and the Capstone spacecraft, and Capstone is a uh, acronym, and it... Uh, Believe me, you do not want to uh, know what the acronym stands for. It takes you two days to pronounce it. So the capstone mission, which kind of is a capstone for the uh, pre-Artemis mission preparations, um, is currently in limbo. It is known where it is. It seems to be on the correct trajectory uh, for its lunar orbit with other mid-course corrections looming up ahead. But the spacecraft is tumbling and because it's tumbling and it's powered by the sun, the power potential of the spacecraft is 
hovering near negative, and it actually was when they recontacted it after this problem struck last week, it was negative, meaning they were draining the batteries faster than the solar panels as they're moving, you know, rotating relative to the sun could recharge them. And of course, if that goes on long enough, you drain the batteries, you have no more energy, you can't do anything, your spacecraft is dead. It almost died, but they saved it just in time, and now they're assessing uh, what went wrong. They're going to try to fix by remote control what went wrong, and then we'll hopefully be able to then, you know, keep it on course for its arrival at the moon in about a month and a half. Now, item number three. While all this is going on, Artemis 1 is waiting to launch and Capstone is tumbling, the South Koreans, as you know, uh, a few weeks ago, they also launched their first unmanned spacecraft to the moon. And this spacecraft is equipped with very interesting instruments. We're going to go through those tonight as we talk with our other guests and, and um, you'll be fascinated to learn what the real purpose of some of these instruments turns out to be, which in fact is not what the South Koreans in their press releases have been advertising. Gosh, where have we heard that before? Anyway, item number four. Um, while all this is going on, on the red planet on Mars, uh, NASA's Perseverance rover, the second rover kind of in the same class as Curiosity, which landed many years ago at another place on Mars. The Perseverance rover people held a major press conference uh, this week, and they announced that they have found a treasure trove of organic matter that could, in fact, help them to ultimately determine if life ever existed on Mars. Now, the caveat is that they cannot tell, they are telling us, with the instrumentation on board Perseverance. All that does is kind of pre-screen the samples and then they drill cores. They put the cores of rock and soil into little titanium tubes. They're going to cache the tubes in one kind of cairn and a future mission, which will be sponsored jointly by NASA and by ESA, the European Space Agency, sometimes toward the late 2020s, is supposed to go to Mars, send a robot down to the surface of uh, uh, Jezero Crater again, uh, find the cache of samples that Perseverance is going to deposit on the surface at a predetermined location, put them on board a, a rocket designed to get them from the Mars surface into Mars orbit, where they will rendezvous with a mothership that's been waiting in Mars orbit that will then leave Mars orbit and come back to Earth. And we will have samples, according to this plan, of what Perseverance has been drilling and coring and storing uh, in Jezero Crater in 2022. We will have those to analyze in 2033. So, um, 11 years. That seems to me to be a very, 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 very long time. Anyway, um, be that as it may, uh, what I'd like to do now, because we're going to focus the rest of our attention tonight on the moon, uh, I would like to introduce our panelists. Uh, we have Ron Gerbron with us, who is our uh, um, polymath and generalist, and who spends a lot of his time uh, looking at the moon and looking at Mars and doing very interesting and very important imaging work. And he has presented some very intriguing information about the moon from the Japanese unmanned mission, the Kayugu mission, also known as Selene. Um, the, I think Selene was the Roman goddess of the moon, but we'll find out. Anyway, Ron is with us. We also have Andrew Curry. Andrew is an artist. He does storyboards for Hollywood and commercials. He's done a tremendous amount of work for the Enterprise Mission. He's part of the imaging team. And you can read all their detailed bios on the website, so I'm not going to go into them now. Um, we've also got uh, uh, Robert Morningstar. He is with us. Robert is a, um, well, he's a civilian intelligence analyst. 
an investigative journalist and a psychotherapist currently living where he's lived as long as I've known him in New York City. He's a specialist in photo interpretation, geometric analysis, and computer imaging. He is a graduate of the Power Memorial Academy and was a New York State Regents Scholar at Fordham University, where he received a degree in psychology. And while at Fordham in the late 60s, he participated as a research fellow in a U.S. Navy-sponsored program to develop artificial intelligence. And I don't think I've left anybody out, so without further ado, let me open the mic, and is everybody here? I'm here. Present. I'm present. <laughs> Thank you, Robert. <laughs> uh, Ready and waiting. Okay. Um, what I wanted to do tonight, before we kind of swing into our conversation, is to set the scene so I want everyone to go back to Radio with Pictures, go to my items, and I want to talk specifically about uh, the Denuri mission. That's the South Korean mission. And I want to start with item number five in my uh, section of Radio with Pictures. This is a map that the uh, NASA people, the Artemis people, posted a few weeks ago of the planned um, South Pole landing sites for the first crewed mission of the Artemis program, which will be Artemis number three, to take place probably sometime in 2025, according to the revised calendar. And then roughly one year, in, at one year intervals, they will send, NASA will send a new crew who will spend several weeks on the lunar surface before returning to the Earth. And ultimately, the goal, the, the, uh, the goal of the uh, Artemis program is to establish the first moon base at the South Pole. Now, why the South Pole? Well, that goes into a little bit of history, because during the unmanned NASA LaCrosse mission, which went to the moon in 2009, one of its objectives was to uh, do measurements of the South Pole to see if the inferences from earlier missions that the south and north pole of the moon are basically coal traps, meaning they are locations on the lunar surface where, because of the tilt of the moon to its orbit around the Earth and the Earth's orbit around the sun, these polar regions never see sunlight. There are some craters at both poles that never see sunlight and therefore are permanently coal traps, meaning that they are so cold, they're actually colder than the sun side of Pluto, some four billion miles in the outer solar system away from the sun. But measured temperatures are that the coldest physical locations in the solar system, colder than the night side of Mercury, colder than the sun side of Pluto, and even the night side of Pluto, because Pluto rotates every six days and the, uh, the polar regions have not seen sun we believe in millions, if not billions of years, at least that's the NASA model. They are the coldest places you can reach in the solar system. And the model is that they have trapped all kinds of gases and volatiles and interesting compounds in a permanent frozen set of glaciers that could be mixed with dust. They could be separate in terms of ice slabs, layers of dust and ice. And We really don't know. So. NASA is intending, uh, before Artemis lands in 2025, to send an unmanned spacecraft um, down to the surface of the South Pole to pick a landing site appropriate to the manned mission following in a couple of years and the locations of that human mission, which will carry the first woman and the first person of color, according to uh, the NASA PR people, will be in one of those blue areas, which are <clears throat> lit, but are easy access to the areas of the craters that they're adjacent to that are permanently unlit. So the idea is to build your, to basically land where it's light and then drive to where it's dark do your sampling and come back and then bring all the stuff home and see how much uh, a reservoir of water and other volatiles we have at the uh, lunar south pole. That's the idea. Now, prior to doing that, the current South Korean unmanned mission, this 1,500-pound spacecraft 
uh, called denuri, which means in Korean, it's actually a compound of two Korean words. One is enjoy, and the other is moon. So the name of the mission is Enjoy Moon. Well, if you click on number six, you'll see a, an enlargement of all the instruments that Denuri is going to carry to the moon into this uh, very low altitude, 60 plus mile uh, circular lunar orbit that is basically at right angles to the equator. So it, it covers both poles during a, a couple hour lunar orbit. It, at 60 miles altitude, it takes about two hours uh, to orbit the moon. We know that obviously from the Apollo uh, mission experience. So over those two hours, they will cross over both poles and the idea is the instrumentation on board the Denuri spacecraft will look down and will sample at a different set of wavelengths ranging from gamma rays all the way to visible light. They will look at with cameras and they will sample with a magnetic field detector and they will look at gamma ray emissions at the surface of the moon passing about 60 miles beneath them. Now, the idea is that as they pass over the South Pole, remember they're in a polar orbit, so if the moon is revolving around the Earth in a month and rotating on its axis in a month, then in about a month, they will be back to relatively the same orbit that they began, and so they will do a series of, of polar scans as the moon rotates beneath the orbit of the spacecraft, and that way they will map at the poles every square inch and they're going to have very high resolution on the cameras so they literally will be mapping down to the level of feet if not inches there however is a problem and that comes up in item number seven because the lacrosse mission back in 2009 carried a visible light camera carried an infrared camera that had uh, tunability and several different wavelengths all the way from uh, uh, you know basically very red red light, uh, you know, near infrared, all the way to far infrared, which is thermal. Um, and in addition to that camera, they also had a visible light camera, which only recently I discovered, kind of by accident, because NASA didn't publish this data back in 2009, that the camera was a color camera. So when you looked at the initial images that NASA put out, they looked like black and white images. And this was 2009, and we weren't really kind of on the ball much, and I never thought to turn up the saturation on the images coming from the visible light camera on lacrosse until I went through a whole bunch of other data in prepping my lunar shows for the last month or so, and I realized that as, as one of the things that NASA does is they have very elegantly kind of sidetracked you so you don't focus on what you really should focus on, and you miss obvious stuff. So when I went back to my archive and I basically brought up some of the lacrosse visible imaging, and I simply upped the gain on the color channel, lo and behold, what appeared to be a featureless black and white image with, you know, bright lit crater rims and dark shadows and, you know, the usual thing you see in amateurs taking photographs of the moon. In fact, the images are very colorful and it's obvious in looking at the images that we're looking at the spectral refractions the differential prismatic effects of light being refracted by the glass by the domes by what's above the surface of the moon which was first photographed by the CIA on the film that I was given many years ago back in the 1960s so if you look at number seven, this is what a stretched version, a color stretched version of the so-called black and white visible light camera image of the South Pole looks like when you simply turn up the saturation. Now the little arrow there is showing one of the locations, Cabius, where the NASA people are intending to potentially land one of the Artemis missions, one of the early missions. If you go to number eight, this is now the Denuri uh, mission, which is, as I said, en route, will get there in mid-December, go into a 60-mile lunar orbit, and it carries two specific cameras that are exquisite for their capabilities and totally incompatible with what NASA and what the South Koreans are telling us the images are going to be used for. Let me say that again. 
the the Nuri spacecraft carries two amazingly highly sensitive cameras, both of which will be incredibly useful, but in a way that no official proclamation by either space agency, either the South Korean Space Agency or NASA, have given even a hint to. Let me talk about the so-called shadow cam. The shadow cam and the geometry of what it's going to do is basically shown there in number eight, um, is going to, from the 60-mile altitude, look down with a very large telescope. If you go back to item number six, you can see where it's there. It's basically almost the, the width of the length, I'm sorry, of the entire Dunery spacecraft. It's a very powerful, highly focused telescope. At the business end of it, the detector end, it carries a CCD, that's charge-coupled device camera, which now NASA is saying in their official statements about the capabilities will be something like 800 times more sensitive than the most sensitive camera on the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter or on La Crosse. 800 times more sensitive. Why are they putting that incredible degree of sensitivity in the Denuri shadow cam? Because the idea is they're going to be taking pictures, images of the shadows of these permanently shadowed craters, which obviously have rims which stick up into sunlight, so only the bottoms are in permanent shadow. The idea is that the sunlight scattering from the surrounding crater rims will shine into the bottoms of the craters with very faint scattered reflected sunlight. And by putting in lunar orbit a camera 800 times more sensitive than anything sent to the moon before. A digital, high-resolution, you know, uh, color camera. They intend to photograph the topography and the layout and boulders and any obstacles on the crater floor and then transmit that information to the Artemis mission team so they can plan their landings in these permanently shadowed regions accordingly. There's also another camera on board, which apparently is built by the South Koreans, and it's a wide-angle, very sensitive polarimetry camera. Now, what is polarimetry? Well, light, in addition to coming in separate frequencies, which is basically color, it also comes in different polarizations, meaning that the vibration of the electromagnetic uh, energy is in one plane, and if it rotates completely in a circle, it's called circular polarization, and any detector, any camera, any lens can pick it up. But in certain circumstances, light, when it reflects off a surface, is plane polarized, meaning the bounce creates a plane geometry to the amount of energy coming off the surface as a reflection. And if you have a camera which is tuned with proper polarization filters, you can see what that angle of polarization is. And in fact, that will tell you what the surface material is made of. Well, not exactly. Anyway, I'm going to leave number nine for when we come back from the break, because we literally are at the bottom of the hour. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Okay, I promised you at the top that I would explain kind of what's been going on. Uh, last week, we had a major lightning strike. I'm in New Mexico, which is probably the worst or the best uh, lightning capital of the planet. I haven't checked lately, but we have an awful lot of lightning strikes. And during late summer, particularly during monsoon season, lightning can strike all over, well, 
something came down less than a thousand feet from the house, knocked out everything, blew the entire neighborhood. And finally, when I was able to get to a landline, I have preserved a landline for just these occasions. The power company said cheerfully in their little computerized voice, power will be restored at your address in two hours. 12 hours later, we were still waiting. It took another hour or two for the power to come back on. And then I found I had, uh, uh, you know, ground frequency interrupter problems in the downstairs, which of course feeds power to the studio. So without power in the studio, I'm dead in the water. Um, what we need is an uninterruptible power source. Way back when, when Robin and I moved to this house uh, up from Albuquerque, we were looking at, I was looking at uh, a Tesla power wall which if you charge it during normal hours and it's at peak charge, it can probably withstand, depending upon how you ration power, you know, no air conditioning and no electric ovens and stuff like that. But if you ration your power, it probably can last uh, for computers and phones and stuff like that for maybe several days. The problem is we've never had a surplus of funds in the kitty for the other side of midnight to allow us to do that. So. If you would like to have us on the air in an uninterrupted fashion, frankly, bluntly, we need some help. We have a donate button on the home page uh, of the other side of midnight. It's there on the left if you're on a computer. I'm not quite sure where it is if you're on a phone. It's very easily marked. Kinthea made it very prominent. I'd like you to click on that button and I'd like you to donate something toward our power problem because as you know, or maybe some of you who are new to the show may not know, a year or so ago, we went 24 hours in the dead of winter uh, without heat and light and power because of a similar problem. Somebody ran into a pole and it took them 24 hours plus to fix everything and get the power back on. So when you live in the middle of nowhere and it's gorgeous here, it's literally paradise optically, but it's kind of like living in a third world country because P&M, which is the local power company here in New Mexico, they, they claim to have 3,000 miles of lines and they've not taken good care of them. They have not spent money on infrastructure. They basically sent the money to their uh, stockholders. And so we are basically the customers who get the, you know, bunt end of the stick. We need a little help. Anything you can send, five bucks, 10 bucks. If you have any rich friends that would like to have us continue to follow the extraordinary unfolding of this disclosure episode that's uh, taking place now all around us. Tomorrow night, I've got Steve Bassett coming on at the top of the hour. Um, and oddly enough, there is a connection between the uh, passing of Queen Elizabeth and disclosure, and we're going to be talking in some depth tomorrow night after Steve gives us an update from Washington as to how that relationship might unfold. In addition, we have these missions heading to the moon, any one of which, we've got three opportunities, Artemis, Denori, and Capstone, any one of which, I mean, Artemis alone carries 11 8K color HD cameras, 11 cameras. We should get stunning imagery of the artifacts and structures we see on the surface of the moon, but only if someone is on the air to hold their feet to the fire and to bring to the attention of the mainstream press what it is they're not telling us if in fact they don't tell us. That again, unique of all the shows that are on the air is the other side of midnight. So if you really wanna help, if you wanna keep us on the air, if you want to be at the edge of history changing, and we're going to talk tonight about history specifically can change if this information finally is allowed to go public and is verified by our friendly local neighborhood space agency, either ours or the South Koreans, then you need to help us keep this show on the air. And to do that, we need help with the alternate power fund. End of message, end of rant. Thank you.
I might also add that one of the easiest ways you can help with the show is simply get more people to listen, to subscribe. I mean, we've got hundreds, if not thousands of hours of programming that I've done uh, here, sitting in this chair in this studio, surrounded by my little furry friends uh, since 2015. Um, get someone else to sign up. Have them join Club 19.5. There is a huge archive of building data, building the model, building the evidence to where now it's push come to shove time. And with a lot more listeners, we can have a lot more meaningful political effect. Okay, let me go and pick up item number eight. Click on that, gets very large. This is another one of those visible light images that was released from the lacrosse team that I had no idea it was color, that these were not just black and white images. So if you increase the saturation, that's all we have done. You can go to the original lacrosse NASA website out of NASA Ames, download the images, increase the saturation till you see color. The white areas are really, 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 really dark. They're almost charcoal black. That's about the, excuse me, the reflectivity of the sunlit lunar surface, about 7%, 5%, very, you know, like, like coal, okay? The dark areas in the, on the left-hand frame, those are the deep shadows, the permanent shadows, which are hidden behind mountains and crater rims, where sunlight, uh, except for some uh, processional excursions, never shines. The image on the right is merely an enlargement of the, the small portion in the center of the frame of the image on the left, and I've rotated it about 90 degrees. Why did I rotate it? Because if you rotate it the way the human eye and brain combination is built, this goes back to experiments with uh, cat's eyes at Harvard back in the 1950s. You see certain geometry if it's presented to your eye-brain combination in a certain way. You see it easier. So I rotated that image so you can see the geometry easier. You can see just a hint in the left-hand frame that in those incredibly deep permanent shadowed areas, there's something going on. In the right-hand frame, it shows you what? There's an incredible three-dimensional grid with layers and multiple colors and rigid geometry, all of which is hiding in the shadows. So here is where the overt mission of Dr. Rob, uh, Michael Malin's shadow cam comes headlong into the lacrosse data. Because if Michael Malin is intending to look through this geometric crud at the surface of the moon below, in the bottoms of these permanently shadowed craters, he will not succeed. Because what his incredibly sensitive camera, hypersensitive, 800 times more sensitive than the imaging you're seeing here, is going to show him is, of course, the incredible multi-layered tens of miles high geometry of the lunar dome. And the dome is most preserved at the poles of the moon and on the lunar far side. And someday in the future, I will do a show where I explain exactly how we arrive at these measurements. But empirically, you can see plainly that there's something in between the shadowed bottom of the, that, that cleft and the brilliant overexposed sunlight of the surrounding uh, lunar landscape, which is in bright sun and should not be blinding white. It should be dark, dark, black, or almost gray, meaning that's the degree of amplification of the saturation and the light intensity of the cameras on lacrosse. Now, if the shadow cam, very appropriately named, spearheaded by Dr. Michael Malin, uh, it, it's basically designed to look into the shadows and to find safe landing sites and uh, places for polar volatiles for the uh, unmanned Viper mission next year and then the human 
uh, Artemis missions to follow, it will be stopped by the domes. And of course, you know what I'm going to say. That, of course, is the real hidden agenda of the Shadow Camp. It has nothing to do with what NASA's been telling us. It's all about knowing where the domes are, and more important, knowing where the holes are so you can safely descend through the holes and land on the lunar surface at the South Pole. Now, the Indians, as you know, the Indian government, a couple of years ago, sent an unmanned spacecraft to this region. It crashed because it literally hit on the way down uh, levels of the dome, and you could see it tilting and tipping and all that because it physically uh, got smashed on the way down. Um, without knowing, without being able to map the areas where you can get down safely through an almost vertical landing, no one is going to be landing on the moon where the volatiles, the ices, the things you need to live, the, need, the things you need to fuel a permanent lunar base, nobody will be able to get even near them because the dome will stop them every time unless they create a very precise map. That is where the other camera from the South Koreans comes in. Because if you go to the website and simply look up um, instrumentation for the Denuri South Korean mission, it will go into great detail in all those instruments that are listed in that graphic, including the one that says rather dramatically, let me bring it over here, wide angle polarimetric camera, the pole cam, which of course is a pun because they're taking pictures of the South Pole, right? Why is that to me an extraordinary confirmation of our model for what they're really going to use the shadow cam for? Because have you ever been out on a bright day and put on a pair of Polaroid sunglasses compared to ordinary sunglasses? Ordinary sunglasses merely dim brightness reflections on a sunny day by dimming all the light. They just absorb the light and they allow a percentage to come through. Whereas polarized lenses, this goes back to Dr. Edwin Land at the Polaroid uh, Land Corporation in Massachusetts back in the 1950s, he was the first guy to create Polaroid sunglasses. Polaroid sunglasses with a Polaroid filter will filter out, depending upon the angle, the selective polarized reflections from flat, specular, reflecting surfaces like water, like ice, like glass. In other words, the secret mission of Denuri is with the wide-angle polarimetric camera and the incredibly narrow-angle high-sensitivity shadow cam, the, the clandestine mission of the Denuri mission is nothing less than to use polarization and low-intensity light imaging amplification to map the damn position of the domes and find out where it is safe to land. Nothing more, nothing less. And our job here is to let everybody know when the first data comes in, if they release the first data, what in fact people are looking at. And that sets the scene for the rest of our conversation tonight. Who wants to start? Don't I'd like to Go ahead, I'd Robert. Like to well, actually, um, this is a great foreshadowing of things to come, but uh, I'd like to take a retrospective. I like that, foreshadowing. Okay. Yeah, it's foreshadowing. And another thing I'd like to say, I'm not so sure that Artemis will go up because foreshadowing, you know, coming events cast their shadows before them is a very old saying that I'm very fond of. And things are looking really grim in, in uh, Europe, especially with Turkey moving uh, 45,000 troops into the Armenian area. So let's keep our fingers crossed that it just doesn't explode in everyone's faces. But let me talk a little bit about Edgar Mitchell, uh, one of my heroes, one a man I knew, I met. I stole some of his data using psychic powers. And I also broke his mind control. I broke his mind control program by offering him a photograph of a UFO that he took over the moon, but did not remember having taken it. And it's a very, very interesting story. Uh, I'll tell you a little later. Edgar Mitchell is important because he walked on the moon far longer than any other astronauts. He spent 
on the moon, nine hours, and he collected 800 pounds of lunar material. And of those um, 800 pounds, 40 pounds of that went to the University of Tennessee. And in 2011, I was the only person to publish the findings of the University of Tennessee. They published an article that said, water is ubiquitous on the moon. And that's a beautiful word, ubiquitous, means it's everywhere. And they found that the, uh, a lot of the material that Edgar Mitchell had brought back was limestone. And being the great geologists that they are, the University of Tennessee, they said limestone only forms in water, in large volumes of water. Which, of course, is true. Of course, of course. Uh, and also, I'd like to say hi to Keith Laney, because Keith Laney's Jigapans of Mount Hadley and other prominences on the moon show that a lot of it is sedimentary material that is layered. And this layering also is indicative of having occurred under huge volumes of water. So University of Tennessee, I remember thee and uh, that beautiful statement, water is ubiquitous on the moon. Subsequently, the Indian satellite Chandra did uh, a probe and it also came across saying that... Do you mean, do you mean Chandrayaan-1? Yeah. That one went around and uh, was uh, taking uh, measurements and uh, samples. And they also said that water is all over the surface of the moon. So again, here's another point that uh, NASA has been hiding. The moon is wet. Um, because when Thea, if you believe the Thea hypothesis... When Thea collided with the Earth and gouged out the Pacific Basin, it carried away a huge amount of terrestrial material and a huge amount of water. And according to the demonstrations that I saw using three Cray supercomputers, and Japan and Los Alamos, and I believe it was Stanford, they put those three Cray supercomputers together and they concluded that the moon had formed, coagulated in, in one month's time, that all of this material circled the Earth like a ring for a while, but because of the gravitational forces and uh, the massing, that the moon formed in one month. I saw a program at the Hayden Planetarium called Cosmic Collisions, which was really vivid, and they showed the moon crashed Thea crashed into the Earth at about 18 kilometers per minute. So it was a long, grinding, scratching, scraping. Yeah, Robert, I hope you understand. I don't believe what? I don't believe any of that NASA model for an instant. I don't want to argue the points tonight, but no, okay, I'm just telling you what they said. Neither do I. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, go ahead, well, Robert. I, I, go ahead. I was going to interrupt. I was going to interrupt if if uh, Richard didn't. I mean, we can't just, you know, we can't just uh, graciously accept uh, uh, presentations like that. I don't mean yours, Robert. I'm talking about the source material. I mean, can those three supercomputers put together come up with orbital uh, results that will indicate how the moon ended up where it is? If that part was true. They cannot. Nobody's well, ever been able to figure out how the moon got into that orbit unless it was parked. That's right. the bottom line. They can program computers to do anything. Well, you, you know the standard, you, hang on, you know the standard cliche of computers, right? Geigo, garbage Geigo. in, garbage, garbage, in out. garbage out. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I'm just reporting to you what their hypothesis was. I'm not saying that I Fair you. enough. Okay. Fair enough. But anyway, let's go back to Edgar Mitchell. Edgar Mitchell walked on the moon for more, for more than nine hours and he collected the, the greatest samples uh, coming back to Earth. And in, among those pictures, there's some very strange things. There's a picture of Edgar Mitchell and uh, Alan Shepard contemplating a rock that looks like a head to me. There's another mysterious thing. I've seen photographs. Wait, wait, you, you mean when they're back in the lunar receiving laboratory at Houston? Yeah, yeah, that, that picture. Yeah, I've seen the uh, same picture and I had exact, you and I never talked about this, right? No. no I have the no. same impression. 
that they're yeah, looking looks, at some kind of fossil. fossil it's not a rock. It looks like it looks, yeah. like it looks like a head, like a bust. <laughs> yes, Absolutely. Yeah, that's Absolutely. why I, I mentioned that because a lot of people will look at that picture and just look at the astronauts' faces, look at the table, and, and, and it does him. not look human. No, it doesn't. It, it is rather unusual. It oblong. looks alien. Reptilian, alien, something like that. Yeah. And it's also, they're looking at the front of it and they're giving us a back view of whatever it is. Anyway, I find it a very interesting photograph. Uh, while I'm on this subject, we've talked about the Mona Lisa on the moon before. This artifact that is supposed to have been brought back from the moon that looks like uh, a Tibetan mummy is my description of a female Tibetan mummy. I saw a photograph a long time ago, I was in contact with Ed for 10 years before he passed away, having met him in 2004 at the Explorers Club. And there were photographs that were released that looked to me like there was something inside the spacecraft that was brought back. It was huge. Uh, do, you, do you know the way the rocket motor is in, in the Apollo landing? Yeah, of course. Uh, the ascent okay. stage motor. It sat right in the middle of the yeah. cabin sticking up. Right, like a table. Well, like a table. Like, they like, could actually like, stand up on Like you know, a conical had, table with a flat top, yeah. The flat top, okay. So they could actually stand on top of that, open up a hatch, uh, and take a surveillance of the moon without... Yeah, now David Scott on Apollo 15 did that. Yes. After landing, first guy to ever on the moon do that, he opened the upper hatch, which is the way they would enter the spacecraft from the command module, he stood yes. on the ascent engine cover, which is what you just described, and then yep. he took the two 500 millimeter lens and took a 360 panorama of right. Mount Hadley and all those other incredible geometric features, the first and last time they ever did that. Right, it's a, an EVA that they kept secret. No, 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 I heard it live. That's how I knew to go look for the pictures. But really? it was the only time they ever did it, which is weird, because it was so successful. Yes, and also because... They Remember, they had Apollo 15, where Scott did it, then there was 16, and then 17. Neither one of the astronauts on 17 or 16 did the same thing Dave Scott did, and I've right. always wondered why. Right. Well, some of us suspect that they were afraid to go out too soon because they didn't know what was outside. And I have, at the Secret Space Program uh, Breakaway Civilization Conference in 2014... I presented three photographs that were taken by uh, Scott, and they show really strange objects flying around at different angles. And NASA tried to say that uh, they were photographs of the uh, zodiacal uh, photographs of the stars on the moon. And it's just the most ludicrous explanation, but it actually is a very strange craft well, you're yeah. not going to photograph stars with one 250th right. of a second right. and a 500-millimeter lens. Right. Well, they they try to pawn off lame excuses on everyone who is not adept at photography, as you and I are. But anyway, these are very interesting photographs, and I showed them in uh, San Francisco. At the same time, I'd like to take the opportunity to give a shout-out to the Secret Space Program conference that's going on in Silicon Valley right now, and my friend Dan Willis presented there yesterday. There's uh, there's uh, many luminaries in the UFO community uh, speaking, including Dan Willis, Nick Pope, Richard Billman. So, hello to everybody. I hope you're having a great conference. And anyone in California who's close to uh, Silicon Valley, you should know that it's uh, going on. It's going to go for another day. Yeah, as I said last night, uh, last night, a few minutes ago, um, tomorrow night, Steve Bassett will be on for the first half hour to give us an update on some of the things coming out of the conference, as well as a major political development in Washington. And I mean yeah. major. Can I interrupt for a second? Sure. sure. Robert, your picture number six. Did anybody ever look at the shadow of that rock? There is sure. something sitting on a slope of the, the rock. That's the one with the UFO in the background, the one where you say Yeah, you to... I don't think that's a UFO. I think there's some hanging chad off of 
uh, Richard's dome. Well, anyway. Exactly. Well, it's, 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 it's a piece, go, of, it's go, a piece of the dome. Take you off on that. The object sitting on top of it looks like it's sitting at an angle and it should slide off, just like the balanced rock well, you on can, Mars. You can see it on top but of the rock. Zoom, it's right under the crosshairs in the top of the yeah. rock. I know, mm -hmm. but if you look closely, you'll also see two rocks sitting on top of this boulder. How did they get on top of that boulder? Well, the important thing is what's in the sky, not what's on the boulder. And I'll challenge you on that because I've seen and found this object in other photographs, including, most importantly, a 1959 photograph that was taken by an astronomer named Jesse Wilson in New Jersey. In 1959, I was at St. Paul the Apostle School, and I was in about fifth grade, and my friend Dennis Healy came over and he said, hey, Robert, did you hear about the flying saucers on the moon? I said, what? He said, oh, my father and I were listening to the radio this morning, and an astronomer in New Jersey saw flying saucers flying over the moon. He said, yeah? And he said, yeah, and he took pictures. I said, really? Oh, man, we have to watch the TV tonight. We have to watch the news and see if they show them. We watched the news that night, the next night. We watched it all week, and we watched it for 40 years and didn't see it. <laughs> you really That's, thought they were going to show it on the news? Okay. No, no, I was a kid. I'm in fifth grade. You know, I expect you know, big things to have big pictures. Mm -hmm. So, uh, Robert? 40 uh, years later. Ron, let me finish the story. Yeah. 40 yeah. years later. I was going through the blue, uh, blue Book files. I got access to the U.S. Air Force Blue Book files, and I started going through photographs. And I found Jesse Wilson's photograph. And there was something wrong with the photograph. First of all, it looked like it was scratched on the bottom. But most importantly, the Mare Christian was in the wrong place. And I said, so I wrote an article, what's wrong with this picture? So I, I rotated the picture and put the Mare Christian for those of you who don't know, the Mare Christium is the eye of the man on the moon. And so I put it back in the right place, and the whole perspective, just as you mentioned, Richard, with the cat's eyes experiments, when you present the geometry and rotate it mm -hmm. to the way the eye sees, then you see what's really there. Things so pop out, yes. What I found was 34 UFOs rising from the surface of the moon, passing in review of a mothership that had a very odd shape. And the odd shape was the same one that is in uh, Edgar Mitchell's picture. And those 34 UFOs rising from the surface of the moon in a big long curve, passing in review before the mothership, were all rising from the region of the Taurus Littoral Valley, which is where the last Apollo mission went. Apollo, Apollo 17. 17, yeah. So the objects uh, are coming. Which, by the way, is at 19.5 north latitude on the moon. <laughs> really? I thought it, I thought it was uh, uh, quite a bit higher than that. Nope. It, uh, oh, of course it is. <laughs> I think uh, Robert, Robert, yes, can I yeah. – I just had a question. The uh, uh, I assume that the little thing that I see in the sky uh, straight above the left side of the um, big boulder is the UFO you're talking about? Yes, well, I, having just gone through a whole bunch of Apollo photographs, which is not usually what I do with my copious spare time, as Richard would say, uh, it, the, it's in the exact, it's the same size and in the exact same relative position above the horizon uh, as all the pictures taken by the fellows on the ground of their trip home circling above them. So are you sure that isn't the uh, Apollo orbiter? What fellow? No, that's not the No, no, you'd never see it that big. You'd never see it that big, and it's not that shape. This thing is shaped like the sole of a shoe, in my estimation. Okay, it's let us not get caught up in trivia, because it shouldn't be there. It's obviously something physical, three-dimensional. It could be a piece of the dome, as Keith said, or it could be a real flying spacecraft, as Robert thinks it is. Well, it doesn't well, belong I, I, on an Apollo picture. When I, I showed like both to, those options. I'm just checking. Okay. When I showed ahead. it Sorry. to Mitchell, Mitchell was surprised and he then did agree. Now, here's the important thing. I, I, uh, I knew Mitchell for several years, and then I popped this picture, and we made an appointment to speak in the morning. And uh, at 9 o'clock in the morning, sometime about oh, about 10 years ago, uh, he, he told me, he said, hi, uh, hi, Bob. I'm here with uh, another astronaut, Bob Risa. And we're interested in what you... I'll tell you what, said. we're coming up to the top of the hour. We can't miss a hard break. So we'll get back to Robert momentarily. 
You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We're talking about all the anomalies below the dome, on the surface of the moon, and we will be right back. Don't go away. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed, and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out. <laughs>